another episode of the AWS Developers Podcast. My name is Brooke Jamison. I'm a senior developer advocate at AWS. I'm joined by my co-host, Dave Isbitsky. And today we're going to be interviewing Mark Ridley, who's a CTO advisor. Mark, how would you explain to someone that's not in tech what CTO advisor means? <laughs> I, I hate ever talking about my job description. It's the worst thing. I, I love talking about my job, but I hate talking about the, the job title. So um, my background is I've, I've worked in tech for a long time, nearly as long as Dave, I think. But I uh, I got my first job in tech. I was the co tech co-founder of um, a business in the UK, which is a large job site, just as dot-com was happening. So I'm, I'm sort of this, um, I think I said to Dave before, I'm like a pirate mode developer, self-taught, went through that whole, that whole scaling journey, but picked up a lot. As I went through that, I had a lot of different tech roles. And so today, I often pick up the CTO job. And often that's going into a business uh, quite regularly at the executive level, where I'm trying to help them understand what kind of CTO they need, or trying to help the person doing the CTO job what they need to do maybe to progress. So I kind of have the, I, I work with different companies in lots of different ways. Sometimes I'll go in with the expectation I'm going to help them hire their CTO and tell them, what type of CTO they need, because they're really varied. It can be more engineering focused or more like a CIO, which is ERPs and the less fun stuff or business tech, all like budgets, the laptops yeah. work. Yeah, all, all of that kind of stuff. Or it could be often working with somebody that's been like a VP engineering and is taking their first step up to the CTO role. Doesn't necessarily know. So it's almost like what I call CTO ops, all of the stuff like forecasting or how you scale a team. So my job is effectively a portfolio role where I go and work with different businesses to help them in and around that CTO function. If you're a pirate mode developer, does that mean you only use the programming language R? <laughs> that's, that's an absolutely terrible joke. <laughs> that's what we're here I for. Mike. thinking about it. Um, no, but you must have seen this field change, given you have such a broad role that really interacts with so many different functions and different types of people. You must have seen this change so much with the onset of generative AI. Do you have any good stories about when you knew generative AI was something that was not a hype cycle and was here to stay and transform? It's it's a great, yeah, it's a great question. And, and there's something I'd love to come back to, which to kind of put a pin on this. I'd love to talk about how I saw the similarities with cloud and with Gen AI, because it's okay. sort of my, my answer to the same question. But talking about this particular experience that I had with Gen AI, where I went, okay, this is actually really powerful. So I don't get an opportunity to code very much. And, uh, and part of that is because every time there's such a long time between me actually writing anything in code that it takes me at least three days to get the dev, yeah, all the dev stuff downloaded and my, my laptop working and everything's out of date by the time I need to use it. Um, but I've got to that point in my career where I don't really care what the language is. Um, I, I don't really care what the platform is. You know, and I, because I work with a lot of different businesses. And so I have to just have this high level view, which says, you know, are we going to use AWS or are we going to use GCP or something else? And are we going to use Rust or Python? Or, and are we going to have a mobile app? So we're, so generally, I have to have this really high-level view. But uh, an old friend that I had worked with a few years ago got in touch uh, in the summer of last year and asked me for help because, obviously, I'm the tech guy. So <laughs> they um, uh, they got in touch and said, I, I really need to think about um, getting some visualization working in this app that I've got. So it's like a training app, and there's a visualization in it. And I was wondering if you could help me do it. And obviously, I want to help. So it's an old friend. I had some time on my hands. And so I thought, well, OK, I can't code this for you. But what I can probably do, because I'm a CTO, so we're, CTOs are useless, right? We can't do anything. We sit in an office, and we, we, we tell people what, what to do. So you know, we've lost like all the actual skills. And, um, and so I thought, you know, I can't, I can't actually help you write the code. But what I can do is I could help you put together the requirements so that we can find you somebody to do this. Maybe we'll go on Fiverr or we'll go go and find a contractor to that can actually help you build the actual code. And this was obviously we've we've seen ChatGPT, Code Whisperer, Copilot, all of those things have been growing towards the beginning Q1, Q2 of, of last year. And I thought, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and write some user stories for what this needs to do. So I'm going to take the requirements. And instead of me doing the work, I'm going to give you everything that you need to go and self-serve and, and have a good relationship with a development partner 
So if you've got a contractor working for you, because I knew, you know, this is the worst thing when you've got somebody to write the code, you're still left with all that code in the future. And there was no way they would be able to come back and ask me to keep changing the code for them. So you've got to find somebody to do this for you. So I sat down and, and I, I thought, I'm just going to write the user stories, but I'll get, in this case, it was GPT. I'll get GPT to help me write the user stories. And so I did it. And, and, and so I'm writing the user stories and I'm thinking, well, actually, yeah, I've, I've got some user stories that I can help describe the work they're going to, to find this contractor to do. But now I've got the user story. Can I get it to write the code? And so I thought, okay, well, because I've got a pretty good description of what I want and all I really brought to the table was I know that D3 is going to be a great, the D3 JavaScript library is going to be a great way to do this visualization. And so we'll, we're going to write it in JavaScript. We use vanilla JavaScript. They use a certain kind of hosting that, that plugs into it a certain way. So let's get them to write. I, yeah, I'll get it to write a demo and, and then I can show him what what he wants if because if you've got a proof of concept for the contract you can say just operationalize this so i'm sat there with gpt and copilot and code whisper and it just writes the code for me and, and obviously i can then and because it's javascript i throw it in a browser and i can look at it and, and i can tweak it and it's doing what i want and i thought well okay well now i've got the code can i also get it to write the unit tests and so there i am with yeah. selenium and, I, and, and i'm thinking can it you know, can actually write the unit tests as well so by the time that i'd gone through this afternoon yeah of something that I hadn't coded in six months a year longer than that you know i haven't touched javascript in a long time and it had knocked out this entire little D3 application. Very simple, but it's working. And I could send it back to him and say, here's the user stories. This is what you need your contractor to, to build. But here's a prototype. Is this the kind of thing that you want? And that was the point where I knew, you know, this is not just something that is going to be individually useful for a developer in the background, going to help them. It's not like Javadoc. And I know you mentioned this before, Dave. You know, that was that was great. There have been these things that came along, linters, all these tools that made developers' yep. lives easier. But suddenly there was this thing which is it was like having somebody sat next to you helping write the code creatively. And it was it was mind blowing. Absolutely mind blowing. So that was the point I went, okay, this is really big. You have to pay attention to this. Yeah, I so there's two things I want to unpack in there. If you haven't coded in a long time, I forgot how much it lights me up, Mark. Yeah, totally, 100%. Especially with how the world is. And so I've been these past weekends, we talked a little bit about this offline, very similar thing. I decided I wanted to code in Rust and I came up with different projects. One, the older you get, the easier it is to see repeating cycles. And so what I had found is my enthusiasm earlier in my career is I was constantly chasing the new thing and I just wanted to code it and have fun with it. And then as you get older, you have limited time. You've been burned because you've fallen in love with different technologies have gone to the wayside. Hello, Silverlight. And, you know, so it's like you, you, you're very cautious about where you do your time because you understand what it's like to not know the exact syntax, but you have everything in your head. You can literally see the code. The concepts are the same from when I was taking my comp sci degree in college. You know, it's like uh, it's, array yeah. and structure. And, and yeah, and so I had a very, it felt like here I am sitting at home and it gave me those same amazing feelings when I was in the office. And I would ask things like, what is the most popular testing framework Right, and it would tell me, and I'd be like, "Give me an example. Show me where to download. Show me how to get the node package. Right? Uh, what's the most popular version? Like all of that." So you, you, I literally felt like I had a team. I'm doing this in Code Whisper, so it's looking at my code, and I'm literally tabbing through. And then I would go, and some of the stuff was a little esoteric that I would do, and I would highlight it with Amazon Q, and it would be, it would explain it in normal language of actually what that thing is that I'm trying to accomplish. And that's the other problem. The older you get, you always need to know the why. Yeah. Earlier in my career, I was like, I'm just going to do this. And then I'd be like, look at this. Look how fast my function is now. My boss would be like, that's great. Can you go work on what we need you to work on? Right. And that was like, <laughs> so you're yeah. always like prioritization and all of that. And really, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just telling all the, because we have, we have a lot of listeners who've been in, uh, you know, the space for a long time. We have people who are just starting, but the people who have been, it's like, you'll remember how much fun I was literally bouncing in my seat. I'm like, this is the best thing ever. And that's where, how I was when I was, even before college, like I was coding in basic on my Commodore 
And it was just all these ideas would come to my head and it's creation, right? And I'm so glad you had a similar journey. As you started to go through that, is that, because you've written this six part series and I'm going to put it into the show notes. Is that the genesis of this idea of, let me summarize this journey of AI's impact across all of this. And I've been doing it in a silo, but what does that mean when you're on a team? What does that mean to companies when everybody's using this? Yeah, and uh, I mean, I, I love that. I, I have such a similar um, reflection as you, Dave. When there have been times where I've picked up some code in, in, in the past few years where I, I went back and actually did some uh, some early computer science stuff and was writing, trying to write C. Uh, and then I was doing some more stuff with uh, the earlier machine learning pieces to just so I could actually understand some some da data science pieces. And you know, you're going through and, and it is it is great, but it's tough. And to when you're when you're learning some of the, those concepts in something completely new and you're on your own and you're just left with some <laughs> training material, it's tough. What I found that this did for me was it brought all of that joy back and in the yes. last in the last few months you know there have been days last week where i'm sat there at 10 o'clock at night and i have to just go back and write i have to change that function so yeah. something something occurs and you're like the where's room. the time it's been six hours yeah yeah and ex exactly and, and, you're just that and it's and it's it's more fun than than it, it because it is so creative and it just yeah. really brings back that that you get in touch with the the joy that you found when you were getting into being a developer of actually creating something that is useful and pragmatic. And you know, I, I was inspired by a conversation that, that I had had with you before, Dave, you mentioned Rust. Uh, and actually, I think I heard you talk about it in one of the other episodes. And so last week, uh, I was somebody had told me about people using GoLinks, and I'd actually just read this in Stripe's engineering blog, um, having just heard someone else in Google talk about how they use GoLinks. So mm -hmm. it's a really interesting concept inside organization. You just have a, a, a link in the browser. It's go forward slash something, and there's nice. a short code. And so it's great. It's like a, it's a knowledge management thing. And I thought, okay, well, let me code that. And so I, I was sat there and coding it, and then realized that I wanted to change the architecture of what I was doing from being a Chrome extension to, to I was trying to think about how I do this with security, which is something I'll come back to. And then I was like, well, Dave was talking about Rust. I'm going to see if I can create a Rust Windows HTTP server. And I did it. And it was faster getting yeah. Rust installed and writing that, co-writing, because you know, I'm not doing all the work, but co-authoring that application yeah. to do exactly what I wanted than it would have been getting Nginx or Apache running on a, on a Docker container. So there is this speed of development coming back, which is really similar to the impact that cloud had. And this is one of the things that I, I just wanted to touch as well, which was I come from a time where we used to buy servers on three-year refresh cycles. So, when you walked uphill both ways to collect them. Oh, <laughs> I bought servers too, Mark, on the way with my uh, horse and buggy. And I would yeah, get uh, fiber channel arbitrated loop switches and depreciate compact uh, servers over a three-year cycle. Did you that, pay for them with doubloons? Yeah, doubloons. Yeah, yeah. Or, or or pigs and chickens. Yeah, whatever yeah. you had available. Yeah, I but, traded a bag of wheat and two sheep in order for oh. one compact server. Yeah, bargain. This this was this was one of the things that that really inspired me when I was when I was looking at Gen AI stuff and I was thinking about that series of articles was. I think it is now easy to forget the difference that the cloud made. And obviously, AWS was the early mover in this space because it used to be, you used to have, to have so much capital to do anything. Even if yeah. you just wanted one server, you really needed two because that server was going to break. And then they were so expensive. The first two servers I bought, both of them, each one was more expensive than my car at the time. They weren't oh, even yeah. particularly expensive servers, but you know this this was terrifying for me, and I was really lucky that I had a group of people that believed in me. To yeah, you to had say, to be a finance yeah. person, just being you a did. developer, because it was, yeah. yeah, yeah, you absolutely did, and so you had to think through all of those things and, and have an idea that these were going to pay themselves off over three years and how you're going to sweat the asset and what you were going to do when you got too busy. So when in that first job that I did, it was working for a job site. So it was one of the bigger job sites in the UK. And so every January, when everybody goes and looks for a job, we had this massive burst of activity, but I couldn't buy new yeah. servers for it. I had to find right. ways to make them faster. And so when we got to the to the cloud really happening, so you know the hyperscale cloud as, as it became, 2010, 2012, suddenly, you know, you could, you were seeing startups start to come into existence and all they had was a credit card. 
They didn't need yeah. to go out and have tens of thousands of pounds of, of capital or, or a leasing agreement and all the complexity. They could just spin up yeah, an EC2 instance. And now it's obviously a, a Lambda or you know, serverless functions. So these things just made the flexibility and agility of those organizations way, way better than it was before, but also easier for the individuals in it. It gave them so much opportunity to mess around, to experiment. And really, the, when I started looking at the, that series of articles, it was supposed to be, sit down, I'm just going to write some quick thoughts on, on Gen AI this afternoon. It turned out that that one article was so long. It, I didn't set out to write six. It was just got to about 50,000 words. And then I had to figure out where I was going to yeah. split it down afterwards. And it took me longer to post it because I'd, I'd, I'd broken it down so much. But the point was, loads of people were talking about the developer experience, loads inside inside technical circles. So there's lots of people thinking about what's it going to do for me? What's Copilot doing? What's Code Whisperer doing? How do I integrate it? Uh, and obviously, as engineers, we think about that in a very specific way. It's a very personal, individual way. But because I work on teams, most of my job as a CTO is to work on the team. It's thinking about, well, how does this team fit inside the organization? And if you think about it, if if we really believed some of the figures, and I think both AWS and GitHub came out with a really similar statistic, it's about 50% improvement in the productivity of the actual tasks. And we know that you know developers have to spend 80% of their time in pointless meetings and only 20% of their time writing writing code and doing useful things. So it's not yeah, going to help. Yeah, make the AI have to go to meetings too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's what we should do. But <laughs> but the thing was that. You know, suddenly you realize, well, the whole team dynamic is going to change. And it's going to change in ways that people aren't taking seriously enough right now. So the background of that set of articles was, come on, if you're senior inside a tech organization, you need to think about how this is going to impact your team, not just the developer that is writing the code. Yeah, definitely. Just to backtrack in case anyone else was interested in learning Rust, I believe it's episode 83 we did with Tim McNamara. And he needs like a referral scheme for bringing people to Rust because I know Dave and I learned Rust after that episode. And then if that's had flow on effects to you, this is <laughs> influence yeah, you, will be so he'll be so proud of all three yeah. of us. Dave I mean, also you, wrote an incredible book on Rust as well, which has helped me greatly. It's called Rust in Action. It's got a man fighting on the front, which I always found very funny. Um, and then the stats you were talking about, I looked them up to check because I'm supposed to remember these, but I can never remember them. So Amazon ran a productivity challenge during the preview and participants who used Code Whisperer were 27% more likely to complete tasks successfully and did so an average of 57% faster than those who did not use Code Whisperer, which is me Amazing. myself in real time. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's really interesting. right? Yeah. And it's even, there's a feature called um, customizations now, which I got to talk about on stage at reInvent and one of the most stressful experiences of my life, but I'm happy Aww. it happened. Um, so with customization, you can now, using your own tools, so you can just connect your GitHub repository or your repository of choice, and then it will customize recommendations based on your internal code. So if you've got internal things like libraries, APIs, best practices, even different architectural patterns, it will learn those and help you to onboard people more because um, I am one of the few people I think that's been working on different sides of this. Like I was a UX manager for a startup previously. And even as part of that, one of the biggest categories of our users was developers. So this whole thing of developer experience, I think people forget that user experience has been around for a really long time. And it's maybe only sort of recently that people have regarded <laughs> developers as humans. But seeing how this plays out with Gen AI is really, really cool to see. And as it's one of the things that brings a lot more maturity to the space as well, at least from what I've been seeing. There's all of the initial building blocks that help you to get to that point of exhilaration and validation when you've got something tangible you can hold on to. But the big maturity in this space comes as you can see how this actually is fitting into the broader picture and running in prod. Do you foresee any risks or downsides of this as people start to run things in prod? I imagine this is something that crosses the minds of many CTOs and it's something that like I've worked in AI and machine learning for a while. And this was one of the biggest pitfalls I saw people falling into. They would get, I called it the golf course phenomenon. And that's when a CEO could talk about at the golf course that their company is using AI. So then they would never move past that. But usually what they were talking about was just a proof of concept that someone did in a notebook somewhere that wasn't running in prod. 
and then they would end up not following things through. But is there anything that you can foresee from what you've been doing in your advisory work um, that there, developed? There, is, there are so many risks, and and I think it would be really, really foolish to to think that there aren't. But I also saw people being way too risk averse. And that was a big part of what I was trying to challenge in in that series of articles, which was, if you are not doing something right now, you need to be. You need you need to be investing in letting your teams actually go out and use this. That golf course thing, I talk about exact exactly that a lot. I almost every single CEO that I have met in the last year is going out in their organizations and saying, either we need an AI strategy or AI is the strategy, which is which is ludicrous. I mean, it's a little bit like like saying we need a we need a mobile strategy for the for the organization. Not we are going to release a mobile app in in our product suite alongside everything else, but yeah. which was similar to what was happening ten years ago. AI is AI is game theory. Yeah, it's ex- it's exactly what the internet was. If you didn't have a website, you didn't exist. Yeah, but but it's almost worse because at least they were happening a bit slower. So somebody came yeah. up and said, you know, do something on the web then you could put a website together and you could start to demonstrate it. And and people and also the web was a a thing. I mean, I know that people misunderstood it. You know, what is the internet? What is the web? But the point is none none of these people are talking about AI. What they're talking about is very specifically gen AI, which is a very specific thing in machine learning. And I used yeah, to refuse right. to talk about it until a year ago, I used to refuse to talk to anyone about AI. It's like, no, you're talking about machine learning. And I think yeah. what's really interesting about Gen AI is all it is is something that's really good at interfacing with humans with words. That's mm-hmm. it. That doesn't that it, we we have we have suddenly gained access to something which is really really good at interfacing with people, but it doesn't yeah. do any other magic. I mean, you know, hopefully everybody listening to this podcast will at least have that basic understanding. It's just completing the sentence. It's like you know, autocomplete for 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 phrases, and it does an ama- amazing job at that. But where the magic really comes in is starting to think, well, that's a great interface. But what happens when it's multimodal? And I think some of the stuff that you were talking about recently with Code Catalyst, what's happening with Q. So that thing in Prot, I think there is something really, really interesting when you're saying, well, I, I, I think I think somebody, maybe it was one of the guests on that Code Catalyst um, podcast was talking about the fact that it will contextually be able to help you know, where do I change my CSS? Do I change the CSS in this file? Or do I have to change it back in some core library somewhere or some uh, something that that is embedded. And and I think the thing that is going to really happen is when these things become multimodal and they're and it's not the AI piece, because obviously that is a little bit nonsensical to talk about. It's the Gen AI interface that is allowing us to conversationally do that Star Trek computer thing. It's like computer, can you help me? Can you help find where the bug is? And it's going to go, yeah, well, is that is that a hardware bug? Is it is it a bug somewhere in, in the cloud hosting? Is it serverless? Is it a bug that's gone through in, in being introduced in the build process? And I think it's as as we start to do proper computer science thing, which are really you know boring, heuristic, data-driven things, but they are dragged back into that Gen AI interface, that's when the real power is going to sort of sort of meet what we're doing. Yeah, definitely. And you were talking about risk earlier. One of the biggest things that I would really hope developers take from this is that risk awareness and risk averseness are two separate categories. Um, sometimes you need both. And it's about working out how you can have these conversations with the senior members of your company. The, the two groups are not good at talking to each other. No one knows how to talk to each other. People don't have the correct language even. Yeah. Lots of the time, boards and C-suites I've spoken with can't actually have a conversation about emerging technology without a salesperson in the room because they don't have a shared vocabulary and everyone's been pretending that they understand for a really long time and now it's too late to say that they don't. So if you're really having trouble interfacing with this, I highly recommend just taking on a trusting and educational sort of role with them, bring them into the choices that you're making. Party Rock's a really good example of how you can do this because you can show them, oh, if you change this parameter, this is how the end result changes. Um, I have a Party Rock app that shows you different measures of temperature and top P on the same prompt. So you can see how that shows different outcomes. Things like that are really interesting just to be able to see something tangibly so that then they know something, they might be able to explain it to someone on a golf course. But more importantly, they'll then be able to tell if someone's lying to them. Because this is what I kept seeing over and over again is that people would be swept up in the 
magic and wonder of a conference they'd been to and they wouldn't understand why they couldn't immediately go and do that at their company when they were running a physical server under a staircase somewhere still. So bringing them in, I think, is a big part of this. Do you have any tips, Mark? Because the more I think about user interfaces and interactions, I think about the interfaces and interactions between developers as well. So for me, UX always leads to different things in collaboration. How have you seen or how do you think we will see different impacts on collaborations between developers and engineers uh, as Gen AI continues to? Yeah, and, and PMs too. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, I think it will, it's clearly going to evolve from where we are now. And I think, and, and again, actually, it, it may have even been mentioned in, in the Code Catalyst episode where thinking about treating the AI as some as number, another member of the team where it's like, can I have a PR? And, and you, I, I was actually thinking, so, so I will complete that sentence first. <laughs> Having AI go and, and, and do a pull request for you and give, give you some, uh, some comments on your code, I think will be really interesting where you see that you've actually got um, another member of the team and maybe bringing in specific um, technical skills and expertise in, into that team. So you might think that something like a QA or a technical architect might not be skills that exist in every team. You've got a, a team yeah. of mid and senior level engineers, and sometimes they want to know something. And I think it will be really interesting once you have LLMs that can interface with what your architecture looks like, they can answer questions either about what is our playbook for do, for solving this this type of, of problem or looking into previously closed tickets and, and then um, uh, educating people about how they might solve solve similar problems. I think we'll we'll see this as just more information at the fingertips. I one of the things that I did um, for I, I have a, a small business that that I run outside of the um, the the advisory work. And one of the things that we did quite early is we actually used one of the foundational models and dropped it directly into Slack. So just calling the APIs. And the reason that we did that is because we didn't want to send people off into another ecosystem. So putting the tools right where you need them, obviously this is totally true of Code Whisper and Copilot today, that you want the tool exactly where, where you can use it. And I think that's that's a really interesting UX consideration, which is don't take people away from the, the conversation, especially if you've got fully remote teams, they're going to be doing a lot of work in whether it's Teams or Slack or whatever other tool that they're using, or even in Notion, I think dropping the ability to call the LLMs into those environments is going to be really interesting. And then that final thing where I almost in interrupted myself with earlier is something I was thinking just before we jumped on the call today is actually getting the AI to act in an advers adversarial way to your team early on. So can I have the LLM as a hacker in, you know, in the team? So can I, can I have a, like a red team that is actually right. running through my code and looking for that risk as I'm actually writing the code and giving me the feedback on it specifically so that you, you know, you're being constantly challenged. It doesn't always have to be helpful. Sometimes something antagonistic or adversarial might actually be really useful. Yeah, I, that's interesting because it's removing bias, which is the hardest part. Even the QA team is hanging out with the developers. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Like, yeah, everyone's trying to march to the same end goal. Yeah. My friends, like recently he's doing consulting stuff and he recently came into this whole repo of code that he hadn't written. And then I was saying, yeah, just get Code Whisperer to help you because it's got all the security scannings uh, built in. So it looks at different security vulnerabilities and things like that. And I was like, this should just be your first pass. Yeah. Like, I know that you know how to code. I absolutely know that. However, imagine if something came up that you did not spot because you want like scraping over someone's code is exhausting when you're still trying to figure everything out. Having something working in your corner, but on your team against you is always super it, handy. Yeah. That, that's a, a really brilliant example because you know, we know that, and obviously a lot of developers will hear about these Gen AI tools and say, well, this could never replace me. And, and, and it's never a nice thing. It's like that turkey's voting for Christmas to think, is Gen AI ever going to be good enough to to replace a developer? Well, yeah, it is. It is It is going to be good enough to replace a developer. And that's that's tough. But let's figure out what that means and what the developers can actually do with, with the skills that we have. But one of, the thing, one of the very first things that I did was I went on the internet and literally searched the ugliest bit of of Perl code I could find. So when I was going out and trying to figure out what is this actually useful for, I literally went out onto Stack Overflow to find some really, really horrible ancient 
uh, Perl code. And yeah. and I'm sure lots of people won't have ever seen Perl. So go and do the same thing. Go and find some Perl. I remember Perl. It's an old scripting language yeah. in the Unix days. I was doing small talk too. Oh, nice. Uh, so so t find an old language that you do not understand and then ask uh, ask one of these tools to explain it and then ask it to rewrite it in Rust. You know, yeah. And, and, and it's fascinating. And then obviously that, that point that you raised, Brooke, about the the risk, I think there is something really compelling about thinking about how important tests are. And that was something that I wrote about in those articles as well. But yeah, I hate writing unit tests. Everyone I know hates writing unit tests, except a very small section of people. But the value of them, if you can say, it, it, just think about a code migration. I had this in a large organization I was working with two years ago. It wasn't it, it wasn't um, programming code. It was SQL. Uh, they were using an old database that nobody in the organization, literally no one in an organization of 300 engineers had any skill in this particular database. Um, old version of SQL. Nobody knew how to to get it working. There was a security issue that needed a major upgrade of that of that database version, and all the code needed to be reviewed. Well, now the first thing that you do is you stick it all in one of the LLM tools and, yeah. and you get it exactly that pass. And you don't just ask it to rewrite it. The first thing you do is, can you create the tests for me? And once it's created the test, you then say, now can you rewrite it? Can I see if the test will pass in, in the new environment? And there was, um, there was a great post um, that I, I came across a little while ago uh, by Simon Wardley. So Simon Wardley is the guy that talks about Wardley mapping, which is a strategy mapping um, technique. And he, he had a tweet, it's quite a long tweet thread, but effectively in that tweet thread, he was saying, your tests represent all of the interconnectedness and all of the wisdom that lives in your code. And that is where all of your intellectual property is. It's not the code itself, it's actually the tests. And I thought that was a yeah. really compelling idea to have. So I started sort of noodling with this idea of um, test-driven solution design, that actually as a developer, rather than just doing the tests for that particular piece of code that I'm writing in that application, can I design an entire solution with tests? Because then, whether that is in AWS, whether it's in Code Catalyst, whether it's um, looking at Terraform, you can actually write the tests first and then make sure Con consistently with somebody helping do the, the legwork for it, that your code, your infrastructure is code, all of those things are meeting the tests. Yeah. I, it's the why again, right? I mean, this goes back years. Uh, I was, uh, I was working for a big company, full-time developer. And whenever I got a project on my whiteboard in my little cubicle was the why. Uh, yeah. So one of them I was doing was uh, intellectual property. So the ability, you know, in the industry I was working in, you could spend $20 million on researching a new cancer drug. And if somebody else got the patent before you, it was all gone. And so I was looking at the ability to create the search engine that would go through patent data. And you're trying to get around lawyers, like the way that they would put DNA sequences and all. But at the end of the day, every little function I was writing was that someone could just type a query. Right. And, and how do you make, you know, how do you have all that function? And you're absolutely right. It was the, the tests. And that makes me think, gosh, there's a couple of things. Uh, Amazon Q, by the way. So when I pull things in with Code Whisperer, Amazon Q has this, you just highlight code and you say, explain this. Yeah. And so, uh, and for those that don't know, I'll, I'll put links in the show notes. You literally don't need a credit card or an AWS account. You, you just go in with this uh, email address and password you set up. Uh, it's something new that we have for your identity and these tools are free and they're plugins in VS code. So literally in VS code, I was thinking about this uh, over the weekend. I'm like, I have VS code, which I've always used visual studio. So it's just, it works on anything. So I have VS code. I have the rust analyzer plugin, which is basically yeah. compiling in the background in real time to show you. Um, and then I have code whisper free and Amazon Q free. So I'm like, I have this amazing development environment with all of this AI for free. And then there's an, uh, you know, GitHub actions. I'm, I'm pulling stuff down for that plugin. It was just, it was amazing. And I guess as you look across this, you know, you get into privacy and intellectual rights. And I'll give you my thought on this. And then I'll allow, I'll let you tell me like in the, in the real world, right? Here's my thoughts on this. We're at the pinnacle of what was created when the internet started. And we've now reached the ceiling on a paper handshake court system 
where we need to be able to solve that human interaction problem first of who owns what, right? Don't uh, trust, verify. We don't have any of that. And so now our AI and our technology is completely limited by our legal system, which has not caught up. And we're going to continue to see more and more problems with that because of the acceleration. And this is where, you know, regardless of your opinion in this space, for me, blockchain technology, uh, you know, when Satoshi released the white paper, it was 40 years of uh, cyberpunk work. And I don't think people understand just the basic idea of as human beings, we haven't actually owned anything. Like even my mortgage could be debated in a court of law. And I think in, in as the AI moves forward, it's the tokenization. You know, Larry Fink from BlackRock was just talking about this in mainstream media. The next phase of this is the tokenization of real world assets. And so imagine I'm a developer and I now have a tokenized version of, of my code out there for anyone to use. And that, I think, you know, you, you start to think as, oh, well, we're, we can't add this to developers for them to actually understand blockchain. And, actually, and I'm like, you don't have to. The AI does. Yeah. So when the AI starts writing this, it's literally going to look across a blockchain. It's going to understand all of the tokens for all of these different codes. And then there's no legal issue. We've never had that in human history, right? Even today, you're a big company. You pull in an open source project. Some of these rust crates I'm pulling down, right? Like it's like, it's like 500 packages that I'm compiling, right? It's like, go get a cup of coffee. It's five minutes compilation time and my computer fan's going crazy, right? But once we, we tackle that, and it's it's weird how the industries don't talk. You know, it's like I'm 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 doing AI encoding in my day job, and then in my personal life, it's all blockchain, and I can see both of these things accelerating. And I'm like, the answers are here. You know, when when privacy comes out, I'm like, it's this. You know, and I don't know how we handle, like, how we move forward without it. You know, wait until the AI is just talking to the AI, and then the AI wants to get paid by another AI. Yeah, you want to wait for a bank. You know, so I think all of that is happening now. It's such an exciting time. Do you see people, like, how do they handle it today? Is it just a climate of fear? Is it, you know, because I've seen companies do this. It's like, oh, we'll just put a million dollars aside in case we get sued because of whatever code that we pulled in, right? It's like, you know, to do it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a big it's such a big problem space, and and yeah, you know, I won't even be able to to touch the really the surface no, of, do a of, all, of all of all yeah. the questions that you asked in there. But I think I think one one thing around we I think we've got this very specific time right now where we have LLMs that are trained on pretty much the entire sum of human knowledge. Yeah, and they're probably smarter than anything that will come along for the next year or so because suddenly people have realized, well, you can't just train on anything that you want. There are some intellectual property rights in these things. And um, yeah, no matter how much you believe that everything should be free and everybody should have access that normally stops at the point that somebody takes something that belongs to you so if if you create something and then it happens to get sucked into so if i write a, a blog article and it gets sucked into an llm and i think that i should be entitled to some money for it you know maybe there are there are going to be great solutions out there but what i do see is first there was too much is go back to your point risk about uh, Brooke about risk aversion. Um, I think there was way too much risk aversion to start with, uh, especially from from legal teams. Quite often, um, from operational teams inside the organization, where they were saying you can't use these things, you you just are not allowed to use them because they're too risky. Which I think was wrong, because what really we should have been doing is saying you can use them, but in these situations, so it's fine to say it doesn't go into prod. But yeah, I, I think I would... that was one of the education pieces as well. People just weren't sure what was happening. Um, and that's one of the reasons the reference tracker in Code Whisperer, that's one of the reasons I really, really like it. I feel like it's one of the, it's not that exciting to do videos about. So lots of people don't know about it, but the built-in reference tracker in Code Whisperer is really cool for this reason because it gives you that transparency and responsibility. So whenever it detects code from a suggestion that might resemble publicly available code um, because it was trained on Amazon internal and open source code, then they're annotated with the open source project's repository URL, file reference, and the license information that all goes into the reference log. And things like that, you can even then filter out code suggestions that it thinks might be like publicly available code. Things like that are really, really important for this because they bring in, then you can have conversations with people saying, look, this is where this is from. It's not this, I don't know, it used to be called like a black box <laughs> for a long time when just the computer would go brr and you would just accept whatever came out of it. I really like 
features like this that bring maturity to the space because they're calling people into the discussions rather than shutting it out and saying, no, it's not happening. That, like exactly. bringing people in with the insights. That's such such a big such a big thing. It, you know, it's it's fantastic that you call that thing out because I remember that was one of the one of the arguments I was able to use when people are saying, "Oh, but you know, we won't we won't know what's going into it because of, it, it is such a climate of fear, uncertainty, and doubt when anything this new comes along." But and what happened was people were saying, "No, we're just not going to use it." To which I was saying, "You have to." You have to use it, but be careful about how you do it. So it's great when you see some of the, those things, like the the reference checking. Another another really brilliant um, early demonstration of how you can actually put defenses in place here was actually in Salesforce, which I thought was really interesting. I thought Mark Benioff did a fantastic job at the the sales. I think it was Salesforce Dev Day where they talked about what Salesforce was doing, mm-hmm. um, and they were one of the early. Uh, companies that went out and created what they called Einstein Trust Cloud, uh, and I know ev- you know every everyone is now following that type of not necessarily following what Salesforce is doing, but certainly announcing very similar things, which is bring your own LLM, and you know we can put something that will intermediate between your organization, your developers, your users, and whether you've brought your own LLM or you're using one of the open source foundation models, we're going to check it for trust, and I think it's so important that what we're seeing is the big platforms are then becoming the ones that are really enabling us to answer those those diligence due diligence questions that we'll have i agree and isn't it funny how ai just accelerates an existing problem if you remove gen ai this happening today it's been happening for years with coders how do i know where where my devs are pulling stuff from it's you know it's like i hear stuff all the time like oh the ai code isn't that great and it's like, well, have you actually looked at your own projects and where that code was copy pasted from and what's actually been pulled in and what open source libraries you're you're actually accessing? So I think it's because it's moving so quickly, it's highlighting things that nobody talked about, like the developers knew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but it's like it's it's a before it was kind of like get it done. And so, uh, you know, like what you're talking about, Einstein Trust Cloud is what's the authoritative source, you know? Again, it's it's uh, like I was talking about with blockchain. It's it's basically immutable. It's a you know it's open and available. It's transparency. Nothing's hidden. It's like this is what's being used. This is who owns it. You know this. We need that in you know throughout the the coding lifestyle. What do you see is the biggest miscon- misconception right now in the space? Because th- this is, and this is near and dear to me. I'm still processing it from last night. So we had family over and I'm sitting next uh, and we're, you know, we have a bunch of January birthdays. I'm one, it's like seven in my family and I'm sitting next to my brother-in-law and he's talking about uh, my nephew. And he said, uh, I don't want to say his name, but he basically said he wants to be a developer. He wants to code. And I told him, no, that it's not a job because of AI. And I was like, what? You know, like, I was like, all right, calm down, Dave, like explain this. And I, what's great about, and I, and I love him. What's, what's great about him, my brother-in-law is that he is so far from tech. He's in an industry that, you know, like tech isn't really part of it. And so he's always been my like fact checker on what the mainstream media has programmed the narrative to be. And it became very clear because I always see it from tech, but the narrative from his perspective is that AI is replacing anything, anything technology related, anything that was labor intensive, uh, you know, to deliver result. And I was like, no, like it's not even like the, the job of a software developer has been upgraded. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not the job of, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, the fun part of software development was never me slogging through writing a bunch of code that matched the programming syntax, it was solving problems. Yeah, absolutely. You know. that, that's exactly it. And, and maybe to try and answer that question, the when I was writing those articles, I, I had this memory of reading some consultancy nonsense written a long time ago, and I couldn't remember what it was. So I started Googling around and one of, so I found a, lo- a lot of reports um, from the mid the mid-teens and i found uh, there was a mckinsey article so big consulting firm and they were talking about the jobs that will be replaced by ai and the jobs that won't be replaced by ai and yeah. one of 
they they, they named two, and, and I, I do write about this a lot in those, those six articles, but they named two that were definitely not going to be replaced. One was the creative industry, and I was writing those articles at exactly the same time that we had SAG-AFTRA and all the, the screenwriter strike and you know, creative industry saying you can't use Gen AI. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and software developers at exactly the same time I'm writing an article about um, how we can actually do a lot of the software developers job with Co- Code Whisperer, Copilot, all of those tools. And I thought, you know, this is really interesting how uh, a, a yeah, very responsible organization like McKinsey only seven years ago could get this so wrong. And now if you read one of their reports, they're, they're talking about all of the new ones that we replaced. But yeah. exactly to your point, Dave, the, the thing that really occurred to me when I was reading those articles is that when you're on the journey to become a software developer, lots of people think, and maybe this is the biggest misconception, lots of people think when you're becoming a software engineer, a software developer, you're learning to code. And I think that's wrong. You're not learning to code. What what is happening is you're learning how to think. You're being trained how to problem solve in very specific ways, and you're being given a lot of tools to be given a hard challenging problem and to think around it and that's the joy you know when you were talking about sitting in your chair and bouncing and when i'm there it's still at 10 o'clock at night writing something completely pointless it's because i've done something that was a challenging problem and i, and I can guarantee right. that anyone that goes and learns to code now is going to have a way better experience than i did 20 years ago when i was trying to plod through and figure out what what idiot mistake I had just made, I can now throw it into something that's going to not only say this is the line that has the error, but also explain what the nature of that error is and maybe how I can get around it. And it's a better partner in those things. But still, there is going to be an absolutely valuable and unique space for people that think like developers. Yeah, definitely. Um, at this point, I'd like to promise everyone who's listening that we are going to have a show notes page with all of the links that we have mentioned, because I know there were so many, we're going to dig through and get them. But Mark, while you're here, so you're a CTO advisor, and I think this is an AWS developers podcast. Our audience is developers. What's your one big piece of advice for developers who are building and developing now, but really want to see themselves in a VP of engineering or a CTO role in future? I'm I'm going to call back to something we spoke about earlier, which is actually about the soft skills. So we were talking about how difficult it is to talk with execs. And yeah. it's really easy to think the execs can't speak with the engineers. But what I would definitely, and what I do encourage a lot of engineers as they're going through their, their journey is to learn how to tell those stories in ways that are um, o- open and accessible to people that don't work in tech. The humans are a storytelling species. We, we love stories and we, we're very dependent on our language to, to communicate. And we're going to have to do a little bit of work as techies to try and make sure that other people can understand us. And that work is actually, it's, it's incumbent on us to do that work. So if we want to explain a problem and it could be. So I often talk about if, if I'm if I'm working in these product engineering businesses, I'll often talk about you're either going to make more money, you're going to spend less money, or you're going to avoid risk. Those are really the three things that you can do. If you understand those things, and then you can break it down so that when you're speaking with someone, you can say, this is the benefit to you or the customer. This is going to impact your bottom line. You're going to save money. You're going to make more money, or you're going to avoid some risk. If you can take those skills and practice it, then that's really going to take you on that journey. So if you're if you're moving up to VP engineering, a lot of it is going to start being conversations. It's going to be conversations with direct reports, conversations with stakeholders. And the better that you can make yourself understood, uh, I think the more successful that, that you will be. But one other thing that I do want to say is there is a very, very important place for individual contributors as well. So I... I, something I really strongly believe in is dual, dual track progression. And I think it is... I think everybody should have a go at understanding whether they want to move into that management track. So if you're a VP right. engineering, you know, you're probably going to move more into people management. You don't have to do that. Try it. Try it with support. Make sure that you you have the people around you that can support you on that journey. But if what lights you up is writing code, then yeah, and, and that really fulfills you. It is absolutely fine to follow those individual contributor tracks as well and just really lean into that. Yeah, definitely. I love that. You know, as someone who has spent 17 years in the developer advocate role, uh, it's because I can tell stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you know, exactly what you said. And I always, ever since I was a little kid, loved new technology, loved learning, and I wanted to go tell people about it. And that's what gets me up in the morning. You know, Bezos used to say he wants to be in a job where he skips to work. You know, and yeah. I never saw him skipping. Maybe he did, but I always felt like that uh, with the role that I'm in. So I think that's great. And one of the other things you said too about the future, you reminded me of another Jeff thing, um, which I, I I thought was a really good way to look at it. I remember him saying, like when you're predicting the future, you can't predict because you were talking about how they didn't see these things. You predict what won't change. So he was talking about price shipping, right? At the time it was about, uh, you know, the Amazon retail business, but he's like, people aren't in the future are going to say, I wish I paid more. Yeah. I wish I got this package uh, slower. Right. And so I've always looked at developers in the future of what was going to change. And to me, it's always been, I wish it took less time to code and troubleshoot my code so that I had more time to myself. Yeah. And to me, it's solving that problem, right? So I think that's not going away. There's none of this stuff's going away because it solves that problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I super appreciate you taking the time. You know, we're going to have to have you back as this, you know, this evolves. There's going to be, it's, it's accelerating. There's going to be new questions. There's going to be new ideas, which I love being part of that. And in that time, and you've explained it eloquently and I love all the information you shared. So I really, uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time and it's coming been a total on the pleasure. show. Great. Thank you both so much for having me. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for coming. Bye. <laughs>